Welcome. Welcome, listeners, to Functionally Speaking, a podcast more adequate to the challenge of the human condition. I'm your host, DJ Moran, and thanks for choosing to listen. During the last decade, I've had fantastic opportunities to see the world while doing acceptance and commitment therapy workshops and using ACT training as a consulting approach for international organizations. In the last five years, I've visited the Middle East over a half dozen times. And I've always really enjoyed exploring those different countries and meeting extraordinarily friendly people. I remember when I was in Oman last year, I asked a cab driver to take me to visit the palace. And he said to me, you are an American and I will give you a tour of my countryside for no charge. When I was in Qatar, the people I was working with showed me an extraordinary degree of hospitality. And going to Dubai as often as I do, I just find working there a pleasure, especially when I can escape the Chicagoland winters to spend a few weeks in the hot, arid Gulf region. And given all my travels and making lots of contacts in the, in, in the Middle East, I recently got a chance to enter into a discussion with someone about doing trainings in Afghanistan. I asked a bit more about the opportunities there and what the mental health infrastructure was like. I also explored the World Health Organization's white paper on Afghanistan's state of mental health treatment. And it turns out there is no coordination uh, of any mental health laws to oversee publications or awareness campaigns. There is no financial or legislative support for people with psychiatric problems, and there's no formal collaborations with other government departments or agencies in order to address the needs for these kinds of patients. The country's health budget is about $300 million in U.S. dollars, um, and about $100,000 gets spent on mental health. I've learned that in this kind of scenario that we're talking about here, um, there's an ACT therapist working with patients and training mental health practitioners. His name is Norman Gustafson, and he was kind enough to let me interview him about his work. Now, before we start, please understand that the recording is not the highest fidelity. Uh, we were talking on Skype uh, from Chicago to Afghanistan. Um, and so there are a little bit of uh, uh, some foibles and interruptions. Um, but please be patient because the roughest part uh, for that is actually just in the first few minutes. It gets clearer after the intro section is over. I think what you're about to hear will greatly interest you. Check it out. I'm joined by Norman Gustafson, who is a psychologist working in Afghanistan. Welcome to Functionally Speaking, Norman. Well, thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be on the program and have a chance to tell people about Afghanistan. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to know, and, and I imagine the listeners would like to know, too, uh, just a sense of your background. I did uh, my training at Washington State University back in the 70s and did an at a mental hospital in Nebraska, actually. Um, I worked in AIDS education for a number of years uh, after doing some work at uh, 
University of California, San Francisco, and I was in private practice for almost 20 years in Seattle. And then I came over here. Great. What interested you in coming over uh, to working where you are working? Oh, well, I've had an interest in, in cross-cultural psychiatry and psychology and cross-cultural anthropology for ever since graduate school days. And uh, I've tried to visit a few places and do volunteer work. And the first thing that brought me over here Really, what, what my wife went to school here, lived here when she, between the ages of nine and fourteen, and so she's really had a um, heartfelt interest in Afghanistan. And when we had the chance to come back here, uh, I was eager to come with her and kind of see what's going on. So I came here and and did some volunteer work with the uh, International Medical Corps, who was they were the first people to have. Uh, attempt really to have a real mental health program in Afghanistan. Okay. And that was in 2004. Gone back and forth a couple of times, but I've been here for over seven years total. Wow. Can you give me a sense uh, about the mental health profession in Kabul, Afghanistan? That's where you are. You're in Kabul? That's right. And uh, actually, just we. My, my partner in crime is the, uh, one of two qualified Afghan psychiatrists. I mean, two. Like 32 million people, and we have two psychiatrists who've done a real residency um, outside the country. Wow. I imagine there is, very there busy. Is here. Okay. Wow. And do you, you work with them uh, and collaborate with them? Well, I've, I've been, since the early days, I've, I have been on the sort of advisory group with the Ministry of Public Health's uh, Division of Mental Health, and mental health has been part of the, the so-called basic package of services for the ministry since, I think, 2007 or 8, okay. um, but you know, that, which is a promise that we're going to provide services as we can. And they do have a training program for counselors. Um, it really is very, very limited. Um, and, of course, their, their focus is on physicians and, to some degree, on nurses. Okay. So there, there's no, no real, in, in terms of university training, we've, I've been talking to American University, and to some people at Kabul University, there's a strong desire to have a real, develop a real clinical program here, like a master's program in counseling, um, but there, there aren't any funds at this point that we've been able to come up with to do it. Gotcha. Um, very much needed. Very much needed. Yeah, I imagine. I imagine. I started to say, before we did a training in Kandahar, um, last week, and, you know, going to Kandahar, everybody said, well, you, like the rest of us, you can't go outside. You know, you must stay in the safe house. Right. Um, and we didn't do that. We did, I put on the, the traditional dress and went walking around, although I, I was the subject of a lot of stares on the street, but uh, we were safe enough, I think. Great, but wow. Everybody, like we had... Know, 15 people in the training 
and at different points, people will be talking about their their history, and virtually everybody will have horror stories of being bombed by the Russians or being um, shot at by Mujahideen. In some ways, the Mujahideen war that followed the Russian war was more devastating to this country uh, even than the Russian war. No kidding. Which is one of the reasons that they that they welcomed the Taliban after 20 years of horror. Right. Wow. Wow, Norman, you're very brave that uh, you were willing to leave the safe house. And I imagine... Uh, the people that you were interacting with were grateful to the fact that you were giving them training at that time? Oh, yeah, very, very grateful. I mean, they, you know, said, made comments, oh, we, we've never had a chance to have this. Please <laughs> come back and bring more, which we are going to do. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, I've been trying to find material to use essentially to kind of train so-called barefoot counselors, not both feet here, but uh, and uh, Vikram Patel, the guy who wrote "Where There Is No Psychiatrist," has a really amazing, quite amazing program in India and Pakistan, and we were looking at that, and it's pretty much a CBT program wow. with a lot of illustrations because many of the people that we're trying to develop as community-based counselors are illiterate. And the illiteracy rate is you know, probably 70% of the population okay. are illiterate. Right. Um, and much higher amongst the women. Um, so I've really kind of hit on the matrix has been a really, really useful tool to have people kind of understand how people get stuck doing something to try and avoid their suffering, avoid the psychological pain that they have, and, and they can kind of see how they get stuck. So it's been a really useful graphic, graphically-based tool. Um, Let me clarify. Let me clarify, Norman. You're using the matrix with the individuals that you're treating and training over in Afghanistan? Yes, that's right. Wonderful. And how are they responding to it? Well, I, I, very well, really, because they they get it. Um, it's not in these. A lot of the problems here show up in some kind of somatoform disorder, and there's a very large cultural uh, prohibition against saying that you have a, any kind of, of uh, emotional problem or psychiatric, what we would call a psychiatric problem. Right. Uh, and the, the traditional treatments are, I mean, in, in Jalalabad, there is a, a shrine to a, an Islamic saint who supposedly one of the things that he could do would be cure serious mental illness. Okay. And um, even to this day, the treatment is basically chain you to a tree for 30 days and uh, feed you bread and water. Hmm. That's okay. the treatment. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, the psychiatrist who's now, I think, head of psychiatry, psychology uh, for UNHCR, uh, 
uh, a Dutch psychiatrist named Peter Ventvogel instituted a program down there where he was coming in and treating people with, well, a lot, most of the people that are there are psychotic, and, and he at least got them on antipsychotic drugs, but um, establishing a talking psychotherapy, there's just a huge amount of resistance to it. Understood. And in the in the matrix allows you to deal with it in a very educational kind of model, and because ACT is is uh, a diagnostic per se, mm-hmm. you know it really is sort of like oh this works on everything. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. We don't have to have a diagnosis. We're just talking about what, where you want to move, you know, where you want to move toward. Exactly. Um, Fantastic. So. That's been very helpful. Been very helpful so that people will tolerate uh, the work. Really. Yeah. Good stuff. Can you tell me about the clinically relevant concerns or diagnoses that you specifically treat? Um. I would say that the, the things that come to me by referral are almost always um, acute traumatic stress. Um, you know, we had, well, things kind of got really worse in the period run up to the election and then after the election here. Let's say we're talking about the last 18 months and maybe a bit more. And the attacks switched from being pretty much all um, military targets to civilian targets. Mm-hmm. And the first one was a very popular restaurant called Taverne Lavon, and uh, there were, I think, like 23 people were essentially, they blew up the gates, killed the guards, and then executed everybody in the restaurant. Um, Then that was followed with about two months later, uh, somehow four gunmen got into the, the nicest hotel there in the, in the city and essentially killed everybody in the restaurant. Oh and they gosh. died themselves over the next eight hours, but right. um, pretty horrific stuff. It sounds that and way. And I, I used to, it's like, okay, what am I going to say to 60 people who were here that night working? Um, and I used the matrix, and it really was... So they could take something away after an hour and a half presentation, but they really had a sense that they said they had a sense that they could use it. Great. They could see how hiding in the basement wasn't really ever going to work. Right. Wow. Wow. That's what some of them were doing uh, a week after this horrible trauma. I'm so happy to hear that the material from the matrix is being used in a way that's helping um that's just fantastic news i, I this is the first time i'm hearing it uh, that that's just really great thanks for letting me know well you know and i i tried my best to use other aspects of, of act as well or, um, i can't say that i'm an expert at relational frame theory but okay uh, very few people are <laughs> Very few people are, and you can still do acceptance commitment therapy just fine without being an expert in relational frame theory. Uh, what obstacles, though, do you notice about applying ACT 
or the matrix with your clients? Well, I mean, I, I think that the first barrier is that there's a tendency to somaticize problems instead of realizing that it's an emotional problem. Okay. And likewise, there's a tendency to want to kill, which most of the people, the MDs and the people who call themselves psychiatrists are more than willing you know, to give them. Okay. So I'd say that the barrier is... It's a, is kind of getting to the point where somebody's really willing to work on changing their thinking um, and their behavior as opposed to, you know, give me a pill so I'll feel better. Right. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Tell me, if you don't mind, tell me what a typical day is like for you uh, working in Kabul. Well, you know, there... Um, I do a lot more training work than I do individual counseling. Okay. And then these things come along. I do quite a bit of uh, evaluation, but there's really a, a lot less. Uh, even if there were more psychologists, I'm just not sure how many people would avail themselves. So, I mean, we're working on developing trainings and then. Um, we're taking those trainings to sites around the country. So the last couple of years we've been doing uh, a whole series of trainings for people who work in the women's shelters where the, these traumatized and abused women are living. Um, and the, the staffs of these shelters have virtually no training. Right. Uh, and then... We had just recently begun working with um, community volunteers from what are called IDP camps, or internally displaced persons. They're, they're Afghans, but they're refugees from their region okay. because uh, of armed conflict where, they had, where their farms were. Um, and they're, they're really pretty horrible. Um, I mean... You can't move around much. There's a, a friend of mine, a psychologist, Ken Miller, is here working with IMC, and he comes to our place because we have a large compound, and most people, I'd say the majority of international workers, they go to work, they get in an armored car, and they go home, and they go inside of a compound that's essentially a building with a small parking lot, and that's it. They don't even see Afghanistan. Right, and that for sure is true of the people who work for USAID inside the compound or work at the embassies. Okay. Um, and I've had the privilege of being working for a small NGO um, of moving around the country a lot. Okay, um, I don't drive to Kandahar, but I can drive to almost any place in the north pretty safely. Okay. Wow. So I, I'm not sure if I got off the track there or no, not. No, it's uh, interesting. I was just going to ask you, essentially, you know, how much flexibility do you have working in your community? And you know, just that's a good enough question right there. How much flexibility do you have driving around, interacting with people uh, where you live? Well, we really, I, I really think we're kind of privileged. There aren't very many people who can get out. I mean, we have drivers um, 
And most of the time, you're basically restricted to having somebody drive you someplace. If you want to go someplace at night, there are so-called companies that are called safe taxis. Okay. Um, I'm a bad guy. I mean, I'll kind of I'll go out and hail a taxi and go someplace if I need to. Okay. But not very often. Okay. So I can go walking up and down in my neighborhood. And there were some neighborhoods where you wouldn't. Understood. So e even in, in Kabul, that's true. Okay. I, I wonder about your anxiety level when you're working in, in Kabul. Do, are, you, are you scared for yourself? You know, I, I have never been scared. I've never been scared in the, in the streets here. Um, but I think it, it, there's a sort of low, a low level of stress because it does tell on you after a while. Um, I definitely think we, right. we get a little stressed out sometimes I because imagine. of the restrictions I and imagine. the fact that there's real threat out there. Yeah. What do you do to take but, care of yourself? Well, um, <laughs> we have... We have Thank goodness, a, a space where you can walk around. Uh, we live in the sort of next to a fairly large orchard that has just, in the last four days, blossomed into pink and white. Hmm. Um, there are some beautiful things here, and, and there are a lot of really generous, gracious people. Um, so that helps. And you know, I wish I was better at exercising and things like that. I, I'll tell you, the profundity with that practicing uh, mindful meditation has really—that's probably done more for me than anything else. Right. If I spend twenty minutes a day meditating, um, it it really is not just a little adjunct thing in act. I think it's. A really, really important thing. I mean, I think it really helps in terms of, of you know, getting getting ideas and emotions unstuck from each other somehow. Okay, but that's great. That's been that's been like the most helpful thing for me. That's fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that uh, you're engaging in mindfulness practice in your work. I'm wondering if you're treating people or training people in mindfulness practice as well. Well, you know, as 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 I'm speaking, I reflect back to your last the last question about what are the barriers, and um, I think there's a fair amount of resistance to to practicing, uh, to doing mindfulness that surprises me a little bit, and I I counsel Afghans with significant English and expats. Um, and the, in some ways, it makes more sense to me. It's like, well, this guy's already doing Namaz prayers five times a day, and maybe uh, sitting for 20 minutes is like, well, this is over the top. Or, right, right, right. or maybe they're already doing it, you know? Okay. Namaz five times a day. It's going to have some impact, but I wish it did. Right. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I guess, you know, the fact that um, folks are praying five times a day and then we're asking them to sit for another 20 minutes 
um, with another type of practice. I understand how people might push back against that. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and, and to the degree that it can smack of religion, it's like, well, it's some Hindu thing, you know, or yeah. there's a huge resistance to anything that is going to be in conflict with this. Right. I was going to ask you about that, if there's some kind of cultural uh, block uh, for meditation. Would people see that as uh, anathema or uh, wrong? I, I haven't really, I really haven't run into that. I mean, I've had that thought myself as, as I've tried to introduce it, and I really haven't run into it as a, it's contrary to my religion or something like that. Because I mean, okay. you know, we're doing it, describing it in a very physical way. Um, you know, you're doing breathing exercises. Right. Um, okay. And you're emptying your mind, you know. Yeah. It's, it doesn't sound too religious. Yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Do you have any particular metaphors or act exercises that you like to use with your clients and your trainees? You know, um, Afghans have a lot of, of metaphors in, in Bari and in to, um, but I don't get them. <laughs> I don't think they get ours very well. Okay. Um, so I don't use a lot of metaphors. Bite my tongue. I, you know, I really try to, but I can't think of a particular, okay. uh, particular metaphor. You know, like the the bus or uh, you know some of the traditional ones. Understood. What we use. That's. I'm actually, you know, in some way glad to hear that. I, there was a maybe about ten years ago. There was a, a good chunk of contextual behavioral scientists who were saying, you know, can we do acceptance and commitment therapy without continuing to use metaphor? Is that really, mm. you know, the most important part to the therapy? Um, thinking about Barbara Kohlenberg uh, was was talking about how sometimes using metaphor can actually be a distraction or experiential avoidance on the part of the therapist. And that's something that we have to keep in mind. So the fact that you might not be using metaphor does definitely does not mean that the work that you're doing isn't act consistent. So I just, I appreciate, uh, I appreciate your perspective on that. Mm -hmm. If you were going to, we're always using, there's always some kind of a story or some kind of you're trying to come up with some kind of an illustration in a, in a way those are, are even though they're, they're not slick little comparisons they still are metaphorical of what the person is going through so you know in some ways I think we use metaphor whether so whether you're using specific ones or not do you mind elaborating on that? Um, well, I mean, unlike an analogy, a metaphor is where you're comparing this whole thing to another whole thing, but that they have some correspondence. Okay. And, and I think just in telling our stories or, or, or saying how you know, this happened in your life, or you're, you're really giving, um, you know, this is kind of like what you're going through. Okay. It's, it's metaphorical of, of your experience. Right. And, and I think, you know, sometimes I, I suppose I try and push in the direction of, uh, of a, you know, this is similar, this relationship is similar to this relationship. Um, 
And, and people can just kind of see, well, this is how I got stuck yeah. in trying to avoid something and see how why it wouldn't work, for instance. And then they can kind of relate that to what they're trying to do, what they're trying to do to avoid their pain and why it's not going to really solve the problem. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, it's meta. I think it, it, in, a, in a very general way, it is metaphorical. Gotcha. I'm wondering if you were going to make a presentation uh, this way, everybody at an ACBS conference was going to listen to you, what would you like your fellow ACT clinicians and researchers to know about what you do? Hmm. I guess... Um, maybe something that's a little different is I, I probably don't spend as much time trying to show the person I can't remember Stephen Hayes's uh, word for it right now but show them that you know, there's a, a bankruptcy and trying to keep doing what they're doing okay. or if somebody's really in a lot of pain that there are reasons to give them some tools, which I think meditating is one, um, so that they're not overwhelmed by their pain, but then to quickly move into working on their values. And, and these are people who do have a lot of very good basic values in terms of family relationships and, uh, and that they will buy into that and, and see that they can work toward building something. And, and I think that's that's sort of the important thing for me is that you know, we don't we really don't have to dwell on talking about your pain. We really can turn the corner here and talk about what it is that's really important and what you value and what you can do behaviorally to move in that direction. Yeah. Um, and it really works. Nope. But, it even works here. Okay. That's awesome. That is awesome. You're speaking about values. I'm wondering, if you don't mind my asking, you are working in a very committed action, and you're, you're treating folks in Afghanistan, which has some level of risk to it. I wonder what it is, what are the values, what's, what's vital and meaningful about that to you that would make you make that kind of choice for your career? I think I mean, I think the value probably has a lot to do with um, compassion and a lot to do with seeing people who are, are really stuck in, in an old-fashioned traditional culture where it's all about judgment and the idea of of, of, being, of acceptance and not being judgmental. Um, I mean, in some ways, that's the thing that I feel is like an uphill battle here, is this is a revenge culture. Mm. Um, mm. Afghanistan and Iraq still have the highest rates of honor killings in the world. Okay. Um, and so, you know, if there, were, if, if, if there was a way of helping people move 
in a way, move away from a sense of blame and revenge, then that that would be something worth considering. You said that would be worth something. Yeah, I mean that's worth spending a significant amount of effort on if if if, uh, if it can be accomplished. It's been great to to share these things with you, and I certainly hope that uh, that the audience, <laughs> ACBS practitioners and others, can can, can get something out. Well, I appreciate your time today. I really honor and respect uh, what you're doing. It's impressive, it's ambitious, and it's, I mean, it's just amazing that you're willing to, to do this with your career in, in an effort to reduce suffering and improve quality of living. The fact that you're working as a psychologist in Kabul, Afghanistan, it's really very remarkable to me, and uh, I appreciate your time. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you for talking to me. Bye now, Norman. Okay, bye-bye. Norman is obviously a very committed behavioral health professional, and his work is being done in an area of the world that really needs the assistance. Good stuff. And there are many people in this world doing extraordinary things with functional contextualism, and I'd really like to bring attention to the work being done with acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT training, and the RFT research on this podcast. If you or someone you admire is doing work that you think deserves more attention, email me so I can help promote their work. We have such a great community, and I want to do what I can to build stronger networks within and outside our ACBS world. Thanks for listening.